Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. I just read to you all the psalms are a song this one is actually a song prayer for forgiveness and that's because sometimes we need to seek forgiveness not just as individuals but collectively and so we have been doing this journey through the history of Methodism and today we start to see why we may need forgiveness not because we ourselves contributed to what happened before we were born but because we have inherited this and inherited some of the hurt that has happened and we need to be reconciled to those who continue to suffer and live through these things. So today, ironically, as I read to you once more from the history portion of our Book of Discipline, this heading that encompasses the time from 1817 to 1843 is called Revival and Growth. Doesn't sound like there's anything to be apologetic for, right? It's revival and growth. Who doesn't want revival? For something to once more become popular, to be revived, to be something that is now having new life breathed into it so that people are once more connecting with their spirituality. Why would that be a bad thing? It's not. And growth, why would growth be a bad thing? We are commanded to bear fruit. We are commanded to multiply in many different ways throughout the scripture. So that's not bad either. Absolutely not. But to lay some foundation here, what has happened in the, in the journey thus far in Methodism is that we have come from being a de- devoted practice of the Oxford original Methodists, who were Anglican. We have come across the ocean. We have begun as kind of a holiness movement within the Anglican church, within the Church of England. And then we concluded last week with the creation of the Methodist Episcopal Church. And with that creation comes a whole new world. And so things are going very well at this point in our history. There are revival camp meetings. There are actually revival tent meetings that are happening, and people are coming to gather. They are singing those songs of our faith that make our spirits rise and and be reinvigorated within our beings. They are hearing the preaching and the teaching, the discussion of God's grace, especially the way that we talk about that as Methodists. And they are opening themselves up and embracing that. They are choosing this as their particular expression of Christianity. And that is a good and joyful thing, but it doesn't come easily. In fact, already there are starting to be some places where people are beginning to rub up against one another. And why would that be? It would be because, well, the same people that are in the church have the same issue with the people outside the church. That is that we are all sinners. It's just that within the church, we are hoping to try to be more aware of it and try to avoid it or at least go through reconciliation when it happens. But it does happen because for some at this point in the Methodist church, things are going exceedingly well. They are excited, they are invigorated, and they are seeing the fruit of their labor. They are watching as people recognize that they are known and loved and that God is their God and they are God's people. And they celebrate this. In fact, they've got so much to say that they're actually going to create something in 1789. They're going to create what's called the Methodist Book Concern. It will be the first church publishing house in America. Methodists did that. 
Now, why would the Methodists start a publishing house? We still have one, actually. If you've ever read anything from Abington Press, welcome to the United Methodist Publishing House. But we have that because we recognize that there were things that were being said and sung and spoken and taught that we wanted to share beyond where they were generated. The current context of this would be as churches are now live streaming their worship or their Bible studies or their small group meetings, being able to send that out. Well, they didn't have that technology back then, so they were writing and typing and sending those things out. They were publishing everything from hymnals to books of discipline, newspapers, tra religious tracts that share thoughts about doctrine and theology and magazines. They were publishing different magazines with stories to share about conversion and how people are doing things. This will come to also lay the ground for publishing curricula that are being developed within these churches. And as they're doing this, what their hope is, is that they are going to be able to supply others with some means to jumpstart their own ministry. Things are spreading. In fact, it's no longer just a East Coast country. It is a country that is continuing to expand, and so is Methodism. We will move all the way into Ohio during this period. It's quite a journey for some of us, right? All the way out there. But things are also happening inside of Methodism. This is a time when preachers and laity were expected to be seriously committed to both faith and mission. It was decided that anyone who was preaching were to possess a sound conversion and divine calling, as well as demonstrate gifts and skills for fruitful ministry. This is continuing today. This is something that still happens. In fact, every July 1st, the Virginia Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church publishes the packet for applying to be either a provisional member of the clergy or an ordained full member and connection of the clergy. And so both of those categories are very busy right now. There are lots of clergy hopefuls all over Virginia and some beyond at other seminaries that are reading a lot, writing a lot, hopefully editing a lot, and also getting ready to talk a lot. Because what's going to happen is that toward the end of December, right around um, the, in January and then beyond that in February, the Board of Ordained Ministry will gather together, we will read their papers, we will watch their worship service videos, and we will have our interviews with them. And these are the very same things that the Board is looking for on your behalf. We are looking for people who possess a sound conversion and divine calling. We are looking for people who can demonstrate the gifts and the skills for a fruitful ministry. Now, this is, remains true also. The financial benefits were meager. Nobody gets into this for the money. I can tell you that. That's not happening. But we are building up treasures in heaven. And what ends up happening is that already the church is starting to set standards. The church is saying that you, as the people of the church, deserve an educated clergy, educated in our church and our doctrine. They are also saying that it's very important that we start to have standardized theology and doctrine that we are sharing so that it's consistent, that if you were a United Methodist in Massachusetts and then you took that beloved trek all the way out to Ohio, that there would be some consistency with how they were talking and practicing grace. And so now we are starting to see this, this kind of standard. You're also starting to see the expansion of the hierarchy of the episcopacy. 
as we talked about last week, that is the layers of hierarchy within the church. And of course, the highest part of that hierarchy would be the bishops. Well, it doesn't take very long for people to start questioning who's in charge and why. Who has the most say? And are, is that appropriate? Who should have the biggest, loudest voice? And who should have the most voting power? It's a discussion that happens throughout time, not just within Christianity and United Methodism, but also throughout our country. It's a conversation that continues even today. What you end up finding is that there are people who, shock of shocks, start to disagree. They start to think, no, 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 no. We're not really interested in having a bishop over us. And every now and then, there still comes a movement where someone says, maybe we need a bishop of bishops. Yes, we call that a pope. And I'm pretty sure that Methodists a long time ago decided they didn't want a pope. <laughs> so we haven't gone there. But there was a gentleman named James O'Kelly who thought that we were giving too much power and authority to bishops. Now, I can tell you that in United Methodism, even today, bishops do not make doctrine. They do not generate theology. They are the administrators over conferences within the church. So, for instance, in the Virginia Annual Conference, we have a bishop, Bishop Sharma Lewis, who is in charge of appointments. She is in charge of opening and closing churches. She is in charge of ordering the administrative life of our church, and that is part of her duty. But she doesn't get to decide the doctrine and the theology. She has to uphold the doctrine and the theology that are in here in the pages of our book of discipline. But James O'Kelly decided that he didn't like where we were going with this Episcopacy thing. He thought that we were giving way too much power to bishops. And so he founded the Republican Methodists in 1792. Not Republicanism political. Not Republicanism political. This is not the beginning of the religious right. That is not what is happening. But instead, he wanted to have more of a representative republic standard for how we were going to run the church. Now, the United Methodist Church still has this. The highest authority in the church that actually can generate doctrine is a congressional gathering of clergy and laity that happens every four years, every quadrennium called General Conference. And unlike other organizations, it is a one-for-one -one ratio. In United Methodism, for every clergy vote, there's a lay vote. For every one of us who have had to run that beautiful gauntlet of ordination, there is one of you who gets to have your say. And that's a beautiful thing. Because there are other denominations within Christendom where laity have no say. Where we seem to place all of the authority and the voice and the vote in clergy. And that is not the case in our denomination. Our history has not been part of that. Now, you can go to this general conference. There are over 800 delegates that arrive every quadrennium to do this. Well, every quadrennium until the pandemic. We're running about four years behind. But every four years, you can do this. And if you ever have that burning desire to go to general conference, you can go. You can attend it. Now, generally, you've got to travel pretty far, but it is a global gathering. You are welcome to go. I have gone several times. I made my mother go once, and we call ourselves conference crashers. We have no voice and no vote, but we are here. And so every time I go, I have a shirt made that says conference crasher. And every time I wear it, people are like, where did you get that? And I was like, you come prepared. And that's one of the things that is beautiful. We don't do things behind closed doors in the United Methodist Church. If you want to see how decisions are made, if you want to see how we cook in the kitchen, you are welcome to come and see that. Now, 
Just because you come doesn't mean you have voice and vote, which is a new thing if you're clergy. Because anytime I go to a annual charge conference at the church or anytime I go to a district charge conference or an annual charge conference for the Virginia Annual Conference, I have voice and vote. To suddenly go somewhere and not have any voice and any vote is a little disconcerting. And so it makes me realize just how great it is that we are a denomination that overall says that for every voice and vote of the clergy, there must be a lay counterpart, which means that it's a 50-50 gathering. And people will say, well, how do you split a vote? We don't. And up until called General Conference in February of 2019, I had never seen a perfectly split vote. I did at called General Conference, and guess what? Nothing happened. It was not for or against, it was a stalemate. But it's also our tradition in the Methodist Church that major changes to the Book of Discipline, to our doctrine, to our polity, those sorts of things require greater than 51%. You can't have all the clergy conspire and then somehow convince one lady to come over and vote on our side of the aisle. It doesn't usually work like that. It's anywhere from two-thirds to even greater than that. And what ends up happening is that it means that we have to be in dialogue with each other because every voice and every vote is important. And you are empowered not to come and just share the vote of whatever your local church gave you, but you are empowered to vote your conscience. That the Methodism believes that your experience, your gifts, your graces, your very particular way that God speaks in and through you is so valuable that you should be empowered and encouraged to bring that to every vote. That is truly a special offering within Christendom. Not a lot of denominations have that. But you could choose to be the lay delegate to annual conference. And if you're interested in that, Bart will talk to you after church. And you can find out what that is like, and then you have the opportunity to go and have the same voice and vote that I do or that any other clergy person has. It's really an amazing thing to have the entire denomination, one of the second largest Protestant denominations in the world, say to you, you can help decide our future. We believe that God will speak through you, and we want to hear. We are listening. It's an incredible thing. But Unfortunately, James O'Kelly decided that he didn't want to have so much authority to the bishops. He wanted to reduce it. And so he took a group of people and they left right in the very beginning. The next exodus is a tragic one. There was an emancipated former slave by the name of Richard Allen. And Richard Allen had come from around Baltimore and Maryland. And he was a Methodist. He was actually at that Christmas conference that took place in December of 1843 when we formed the Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, unfortunately, he didn't have a vote because he wasn't Caucasian, but he was there from the ground floor. And one of the things that happened was that he recognized that even as Methodist was expanding out into the frontier and into the rural areas that were, coming, that were up and coming in the country, he recognized that he needed to go into the inner city. He traveled to Philadelphia and started taking his ministry there. Now, some of you are going, why Philadelphia? Because at that time, Philadelphia was the second largest English-speaking city in the world, only overshadowed by London. Philadelphia was huge. 
And so he went there. It had also been a place where many emancipated former slaves and many slaves were congregating. And there he targeted his audience with the doctrine of grace, with a theology of God's love and forgiveness. And he was able to preach not only from his own experience and context, but he was able to address their real world problems. And so he gave Methodism to them. But he had a very unfortunate experience. One time he had gone to, min- to worship at a church, a Methodist Episcopal church in Philadelphia. And as they were in the middle of prayer, a gentleman walked up to Richard Allen and tapped him on the shoulder and told him and those other non-Caucasians with him that they had to go up into the balcony. They weren't allowed to be here. There is a tragic past to those balconies and those mezzanines, especially in the southern churches in Methodism, and that is that oftentimes they built those mezzanines as a place for slaveholders to deposit their slaves on Sunday morning so that they could get the benefits of hearing Christian worship, but they didn't have to be seen or heard. And in Philadelphia, they tried to do that to Richard Allen and those that had gathered there. And for whatever reason, the movement over the Holy Spirit or his conviction that all were equal in Jesus Christ, Richard Allen said, no, I will not go up there and I will not take these others with me. If you do not see us equal in Jesus Christ, if you do not believe that God's grace is equal for all of us, regardless of our skin color, then we will go. And they did. They literally walked out of that worship service. And he would start what is known as the African Methodist Episcopal Church. So if you've ever driven across the country or you've had the opportunity to see a church that says AME, that is the legacy of Richard Allen. He will become the first bishop in that church. And it's a reminder to us as United Methodists that sometimes we have let our sinfulness seep into the church. Because Richard Allen was reading the same scriptures that his Caucasian counterparts were reading. But he heard when the Apostle Paul says, in Christ there is no male or female, Greek or Jew, slave or free. He heard that we were to treat each other as equals. And he heard that not just with his ears and his mind, he heard it with his heart and into the very depths of his soul. So much so that he was willing to step out in faith and found a place where those people could live that out. Now, unfortunately, even within the AME church, there would be another schism. And so if you've ever seen AME Zion, African Methodist Episcopal Church Zion, that's another offshoot that has come off of the AME church. But it is a deep, profound reminder. When I went to seminary, Caucasians were the minority. They were much more black, African, African African-American, Hispanic and Latinx, depending on their identification, and Korean people than there were Caucasians. And so having the opportunity to talk with people who were from that stream of Wesleyanism, those people who were Methodists from Richard Allen's experience, was incredible. That wasn't something that was a part of my background. But they are a people who tell a narrative about choosing not to cave 
to expectations of the world, but rising to the expectation of God. If God expects us to raise people up, then we have to live that out. And that is the narrative that they share. It's very powerful. Do you remember when someone raised you up? Do you remember when you were crushed and defeated? When you thought that you didn't even know if you could go on and someone raised you up? Do you remember? Have you had that experience? Have you been blessed to raise up another? The last time I can remember feeling that crushed was in the middle of the pandemic when I realized just how much the deprivation of social contact had affected me. It had actually infected my mind to the point that I was clinically depressed. And I remember recognizing that I was that sick. And I remember calling and telling both my spiritual director and the one who had been my mentor all the way through the candidacy and ordination process. I called the Reverend Bob Cooper. And Bob Cooper comes from Tangier Island. And I don't know if you've ever been to Tangier Island. I still haven't. Bob's trying to get me there. But it's a very small island. There's like 300 people on that island. And it's a part of Virginia. They sound different than a lot of us on the mainland. But Tangier is a place where people figure out how to live together because you got nowhere to go. You got to take a ferry to get there. And you got to wait for the ferry to get off. And so they know what it is like to have to work through those things. And it gives them a spiritual fortitude. So I can remember calling Bob and telling Bob that I was broken. I remember calling and telling him and saying, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get through this because there's no end in sight. And I'm already this sick. And what do you do? And I can remember Bob saying, I'm here for you. And part of me was thinking, no, Bob, you're not, because I'm doing loops around my couch, and the only person here is a beagle. But he called the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. And his phone calls and his text messages and his check-ins, they became that lifeline. And I didn't realize that Bob was pulling me up every time he called. He was raising me up. And I was kind of doing one of those things where you flop around like dead weight, like a Vietnam-era protester, just kind of like hanging out. And Bob was like, get up. Come on, we're going to do this. Get up. And I remember being very clear that that's what he was doing. That was his heart. That was his intention. Now, Bob will tell you that he has carried me for a long time. Luckily, he's tall with broad shoulders because he's carried me for a long time. But he didn't carry me through the pandemic. He let me stand on his shoulders. He raised me up with his constancy. He raised me up with his faith in me, with his willingness not to let me languish and die, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. He decided that he was going to raise me up. And I remember talking to him after it was all over, actually one of the first times that it was safe to actually see each other. He drove all the way from Midlothian here to Charlottesville, and he drove up here, and we went to lunch together, and I hadn't seen him in forever, laid eyes on him. And for about two hours, we were just in each other's presence. We ate a meal, we talked, we laughed, we practically cried. And I remember that Bob said, when I told him how grateful I was, Bob said, you know, you did that for me. Bob, what are you talking about? 
when did I ever help you? He said, do you remember when we were struggling after the creation of the Wesleyan Covenant Association and how it was already starting to create tension within Methodism, but especially here in Virginia? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Do you remember how people were attacking me? Yeah, I do. Do you remember calling me and texting me and checking in on me? Yeah, I guess I did. Bob said, you did it for me, and I'm doing it for you. We are Christians, not just by precept and example, but we are Christians because this becomes part of who we are. We become a people who either imbue grace or we just talk about it. We are a people who let God's grace not only come upon us, but flow outwardly through us or not. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is calling us to a much more profound existence. The psalmist says in most prophetic prose, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground, raising us up. And righteousness will look down from the sky. It will rain down. That the psalmist is telling us that it is the faithfulness, not because we are convinced that we have all the answers, not because we are convinced that today we are good Christians and we have the assurance that we are who we are called to be. We will rise because of our faithfulness to God and one another. Because every single human being will have a day that they need to be raised up. Most of us will have more than one. But how many of us have not had our eyes open, our ears attuned, and our hearts ready to do the same for another? I will never forget thinking that the goodness that Bob gave to me was a natural outflowing, outpouring in response to something that I had done for Bob. Because really, I did those things for Bob because we had been knitted together. He was the first mentor I ever had in candidacy. When I declared that I thought I wanted to be clergy, he was there. When he was assigned to me, he was there on the board of ordained ministry when I went forward before them both times. He was on the team that I ended up having to interview with. And I remember him looking at me and asking me a question when I was going to be ordained. He said, why are you pursuing ordination? Why not stay a licensed local pastor? You can stay where you are. You don't have to leave. There's a, there's a level of control that you have as a licensed local pastor that you surrender completely when you're an ordained elder. Why would you want to lose that control? It was a question I hadn't anticipated. And I remember looking at him and saying, because this is who God has called me to be. I'm not called to be a licensed local pastor. I'm called to be an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and nothing less will do. Who is it that God is calling you to be? Who is it that you know in your heart of hearts and the depth of your being, just like Richard Allen, who is it that you know that God is calling you to be? And is there something keeping you from doing it? 
Is it fear? Is it anxiety? Is it a thought that it might not work out? Who is it that God is calling you to be? Because that is the focus of growth and revitalization. That is what is important when we are talking about who we were and who we are going to be. The best is not behind us. We have come through schism before. We have come through reconciliation before as Methodists, and we are very well facing that again. But what is constant is God's grace for us and through us. And if we are committed to that, if that is who we choose to be, a people who open ourselves up to receive it and a people who are pouring ourselves out to give it, then the title under our section will be a rekindled faith. It will be about a return to grace and grace alone. The bishop who laid hands on me and ordained me, Bishop Cho, used to say, not a lot actually, but one of the things that he used to say, he was known for his prayer life, and he would say, your will be done, Lord, nothing more nothing less. And he would say that over and over again when he prayed. Your will be done, Lord. Nothing more and nothing less. May we be a people who are so committed to being who God has called us to be, given us the grace to actually become. May we be those people, nothing more and nothing less, that God's will may be done in us, and through us. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.